What is it about us? Why does America have to mythologize its former presidents, unlike other industrialized nations? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. What does it say about America that pretty much without fail we mythologize our past presidents? Our version of what passes for history has to be neat. The fact that real people and their legacies are universally complex can never be allowed to get in the way of what we need to believe about them. Though he was obviously never president, Martin Luther King Jr. has done a grave disservice by the myth that has been assigned to him. Sure, he was a civil rights leader, but he was a lot more than that. Uh, that, that which doesn't fit Our image, the myth, is just sliced off. The fact that he was about poor people's struggles the world over, including the people of Vietnam who were designated as our enemy, is papered over because it's inconvenient. It doesn't fit the neat reduction which now stands as our reality. And our presidents, they were real people with real good, sometimes great works, but were also, uh, had also other aspects which, again, don't fit neatly. Are we better for choosing myth over reality? You decide. Today, our guest is Anthony Pankey, whose article on Al Jazeera asks the question we'll delve into today. Why does the U.S. mythologize its former presidents? Is it something unique, which unintentionally does more to define us? And we'll look at what the dominance of myth over reality does to us today and tomorrow. Thanks for being with us, Anthony Pankey. Thanks for having me. Uh, Anthony Pankey is Assistant Professor of International Relations at San Francisco State University. His research deals with social movements and protest, development, and trade policy. He asks, no matter their shortcomings, former presidents have a history of being mythologized as forces for good in America. Even Nixon was able to exert influence after his disgraced tenure. Will the same happen for Donald Trump? Well, again, thanks for being with us, Anthony. What prompted you to write this article at this time? Well, you know, I think, uh, like you were saying, part of, you know, there's a lot of speculation uh, ongoing about what uh, President Trump will do now that he's no longer president and that he lost the election. And so, you know, I was, you know, looking, following the news and seeing what he's been up to and doing and, and then, you know, comparing, uh, what he's been doing with uh, other presidents, uh, you know, and also, you know, like my trainings in, um, well, political science, I, I do a lot of work on development and, um, trade and social movements and protests. And I also do different work on policies and institutions. And, and that's taken me to other countries. Uh, I've done a lot of work in Brazil. Now uh, in Latin America, and one thing you notice is there's different countries that got different institutions. And so the United States, we have a president who can serve two terms and they're done. And then, you know, in, uh, in Mexico, it's different. You have president gets elected, it's one term, but it's not four years, it's six years, and then they're done. And then you have countries like Brazil where a president can serve two consecutive terms 
and then they get to take some time off, but then they can run again. And so you, you know, when you look at the countries, you see their different institutions, you think, well, you know, what makes presidents, you know, what, what incentives are there um, that the institutions provide for them to do things, you know, after they, after they serve out their time. And Trump's been a, you know, a controversial figure to say the least. And, you know, is he, he can't, he can run again. You know, it's, that's the thing. Like, at least right now, we'll see what happens with the Senate trial, but he can run again. And so, or will he, or will he get behind other candidates? And so that's part of, you know, kind of those kinds of questions and, you know, the international focus. And then, um, you know, just the, the, you know, Trump himself got me to think about, you know, these issues. Yeah. And, and what will the myth be as time goes on? It does change over time. That's for sure. As we'll see, as we discuss various former presidents, what about the mm-hmm. role of celebrity in American presidency? Unlike many countries where there's one person who's head of state, somebody who symbolizes the country like a powerless but glorified monarch, head of state, and another of, as head of government, who doesn't need glamour or charisma but just runs the government. Here in America, of course, the presidency is a combination of the two. How might that factor affect our collective wish to mythologize a former president? Well, there wasn't really uh, another, well, maybe Reagan, but, uh, you know, Trump was the, you know, had the, the celebrity background to him in terms of having his own TV show and, and so on, attracting so much attention. Um, and I think that, you know, say, talking about, um, you know, not um, not a monarch, you know, having certain kind of charisma, but having to work in government, you know, to combine different roles, that kind of, how do you say, like leeway within the presidency uh, is something that I think you can see different presidents, you know, do different things with. And so you can have presidents, there's a lot of wiggle room, so to speak, you know, like there's, you'd have presidents that are very proactive. I think, you know, if you think about, um, well, you know, FDR back during the Great Depression and the the, the executive orders, the, the initiatives, the, the things that came out of his government, um, multiple terms, um, mm-hmm. then you can have, you know, seems like Trump, you know, of course, using Twitter and so on, kind of had a more hands-off approach in terms of getting into, you know, the nitty-gritty of, of policy debates and discussions. Then you have the stories of, like, Lyndon, ben ja- Lyndon Baines right. Johnson and the civil rights legislation who took more of an active role. And so there is something, like, you know, and those are great stories, like, especially the LBJ stories of working with Martin Luther King and what he did and how he got other representatives to do certain things to get the civil rights legislation across the finish line. Like there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, possibilities that the, that the U S presidency, that the president can do, you know? And so I think that's something that gets us thinking about, you know, what, what, what could happen and so on. And I do, as you describe it, I'm of the opinion that uh, Trump thought the presidency was all and only about celebrity. He was uh, the mm-hmm. apprentice star. He didn't. Did he run the government? Pfft, heck, no, not at all. I think he yeah. was just about <laughs> celebrity, being a star, mm-hmm. get ratings. That was it. But it really is mm-hmm. supposed to be a combination of the two. Now, all school kids in America learn that George Washington was the father of our country. No doubt, he was an amazing general in the War for Independence. But I wonder about his presidency. As with all humans, he had his faults, like owning humans as slaves, uh, which was not atypical of wealthy white men of the time. 
Today, there are a lot of statues of George Washington. Many slave owner statues are being taken down today. My sense is that many countries put their liberators on a pedestal. Is the U.S. idiosyncratic on his myth of greatness, or does it fall in line with nearly worldwide practices of putting a liberator on a pedestal? Oh, I think there's a lot of countries, you know, that the putting liberators on pedestals, uh, you don't have the same kind of maybe the same exact language of founding fathers, but you do have, I mean, I think of, you know, Simon Bolivar in, in uh, well, in, right. in Venezuela, in Colombia, you have um, quite a lot, you know, the Chavez government and, uh, you know, the Maduro government. And before, you know, also they really invested a lot in Simon Bolivar, you know, sure. talking like early 19th century liberation leader for most of what, like the Andean region, like the area in Latin America. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so I think you have, um, and in George Washington, of course, um, there is this, the, the history of slavery. And then, um, he, he, you know, he leaves office and at that time there wasn't a constitutional amendment saying he only could run for right. two terms. And, uh, then he leaves office and then he dies just a couple of years later. I mean, yeah. in, in he was still somewhat involved in politics, but it wasn't like, didn't have the time to really like make a, you know, all in comeback. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think there is this, a lot of countries, you know, the, the capital cities, particularly you'll see a lot of, oh, sure. you know, different, uh, historical figures and so on. Yeah. And certainly Bolivar, big, big influence. Uh, Bolivarian is still mm -hmm. the phrase that's mm -hmm. used down there. And you say, mm -hmm. as is more often the case than not, former presidents are given a kind of free pass to do as they please once they leave office. Tell us, please, about, first, who James Madison was and how he is an early example of this. How did he try to burnish his image after he left office? Yeah, when, when I was writing up um, some of this, you know, writing up the article, and um, and I was getting into some of the some of the stories of different uh, presidents and their post-presidential lives. Cause you know, um, uh, it's not just, you know, George Washington had a short post-presidential life, but then, you know, James Madison, he had, I think he was alive for something like 20 some years after, um, you know, after he served his terms as president. And, and, you know, you think, you know, part of me, I'm, you know, I study politics. I think about power, you know, and I think these people became, you know, at one point in their lives, uh, they were, perhaps the most powerful people in the country, maybe in the world. And, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, especially if you're on the younger side. Um, and then you yeah, look into James Madison and he had about 20 years of his life. You know, he lived 20 years after he served in office. And I found a couple a couple of biographies um, by um, Jerry Willis and Donald McCoy, who, who write about how Madison, um, he got involved with debates of his day, got involved and even like went back through correspondences. He had like a, I don't know if you call it a feud, but like back and forth with Thomas Jefferson and kind of falling out with him and went back into some of his letters and changed some of the, like what was written to kind of, to, to, you know, kind of doctoring statements. Mm -hmm. And, and there's even in one of the, I think I forget if it's, if it's the, uh, if it's the McCoy, the Will, Will's uh, biographers, they talk about how, uh, you know, at the end of his life, he was getting sick a lot. And they said that part of the reason why people thought he was getting sick was because he was worried about, his uh, reputation, yeah. like going forward. And this seemed to be very petty, but it was like, and this is, you know, James Madison, we think of him as like the, like the most brilliant founding father, the guy who basically wrote the constitution, who designed it, you know, 
And here's a guy in his, you know, uh, after leaving office, he's still obsessed with power and politics. Oh, my goodness. Ego. Boy, mm -hmm. think of what we could get yeah. done without <laughs> egos. It's amazing. And, you know, you talk about things having to be neat. The election of 2020 was a little messy, but it wasn't the messiest. That was 1876 mm -hmm. when a fiercely contested election between, uh, uh, was it uh, Buchanan and uh, uh, Jim uh, Tilden? Uh, my, my, I know that Tilden was one of Rutherford them. Hayes, Rutherford Hayes. You got me there. Yep. Thank you. So that's what we have historians <laughs> for. So, but it, it was only settled because it was disputed. It was disputed all the way into March of the following year. And it was only settled by both Democrats and Republicans agreeing to let racist Jim Crow laws stand in the South. They just agreed on that. But that history is mm -hmm. erased because it's not so neat. Interesting stuff there. Mm -hmm. And another mm -hmm. another person who was really sensitive to his image was Theodore Roosevelt. He came, of course, from a wealthy family and had been sickly in his youth. And he made sure never to be pictured in a tennis outfit, though that that was what he did. That was his favorite pastime. <laughs> but it looked too feminine. So he was mm -hmm. obsessed with looking tough, uh, you know, the Rough Riders myth. He was a mix of good and bad, conserving America's wilderness, but also itching for a fight against the Filipinos in the Spanish-American War and his rather overt racism. And mm -hmm. I, I read, oh, just a few years ago that uh, after he was president, I think it was, he told the Japanese they were masters of the Pacific Ocean and that led to their uh, extreme machismo and power hungerness, which led to mm. the attack on Pearl Harbor. What is Teddy mm -hmm. Roosevelt's unique myth, and how is it uniquely American? Well, he's he, he's definitely one of these figures who, like Madison. I mean, but when Roosevelt became president, it was you know he was vice president for it was uh, President McKinley who gets. Um, who was killed um, turn of the century time and right at the beginning of his second term. And so Roosevelt becomes president. He's like 40 years old. He's like, I think the youngest president that ever had. And he serves out the first term of, of uh, McKinley's second term or his first term is McKinley's second one. Then he runs for election wins and he damn, you know, takes some time off, but then he's got, you know, he's a young man when he's, he's not even 50 and he's, he's already been president, you know, and, so talk about someone who's got, you know, lots of time and who comes from a wealthy political family um, in New York. And but basically what happens is that basically what happens is that, uh, you know, in terms of his myth, you know, that, that, that masculinity that you mentioned, the racism, there's the, there's the you know, imperialism basically is this way that he's oh, yeah. um, kind of like almost, I don't want to say the founder, but like <laughs> he definitely got imperialism going in the United States. But then there's this, issue of strength. Um, there's also the Panama Canal story, mm -hmm. of course, of uh, basically assuring that. And uh, there's that in terms of uh, strength and perseverance and all this stuff, like almost it, part of his myth, I think is it's almost like relatable. It's just like kind of like populism stuff where it's like you, you won't, like he's a person like anybody else. Um, he hunts, he fishes, he does all these things that a lot of other people do. Um, but then he's also from a super wealthy family. <laughs> so he's also very different, you know, different backgrounds and so on. So there's a lot, you know, going on with him. 
and his image took him down to the Amazon mm-hmm. River. I believe it was yeah. after his presidency, yeah. which yep. is looking tough. Oh boy, looking tough, but it very <laughs> yeah. nearly killed yeah. him. It very nearly yep, killed right. him. And I I can't help but see this whole masculinity obsession that that so many so far male presidents uh, have stuck to, and so much of American culture mm-hmm. is all about looking tough, being macho, rough mm-hmm. riders, all that. It's just, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure if other countries do that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. And our guest today is Anthony Pankey, who is Assistant Professor of International Relations at San Francisco State University. And we're talking about his article on Al Jazeera. Why does the U.S. US mythologize its former presidents? One president... I don't think has a mythology built around him is Woodrow Wilson. He seems to be the rare exception. As time goes on, historians are taking an increased actual look at his record. Is it because he never had the aura of hero around him? Your thoughts on Woodrow Wilson and lack of a myth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, well, he was a professor, political science professor, maybe not the most the glamorous thing before uh, before uh, becoming president. Um, and he, I think he, you know, there's different, um, not just being a professor, but he also, I mean, he has a certain, I don't know if you call it myth, but there's this kind of, um, uh, in terms of in, international relations about how he um, kind of helped secure the peace with, you know, with World War One. you know, I enumerated these like, um, the 14, 14 points. points for yeah. world peace and all this stuff. And so I think inter- and then the, the issue then like helps, you know, it's, it's considered like an architect of the league of nations, like one of the, you know, like the precursors to the United nations, but it doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get off the ground in the United right. States. It doesn't, right. You know, the U S never joins it. And I, mean, I think those things, I mean, his job background, and he's also known, I mean, now, like you're saying, like if you look at his record as, you know, overt racism, um, and, but at the same time, like he came out as someone who somewhat of a populist in terms of taking on corporations. I mean, I think like his record, maybe his personality, his policies are very mixed and maybe in those ways, like hard to really, um, you know, like not doesn't really lend itself to this kind of um, grandiose figure or charismatic figure like other like Teddy Roosevelt. You're definitely very different in that regard. Well, and maybe, maybe that's a good thing. We can have actual history, mm-hmm. you know, go back and, mm-hmm. and take a look at it and see who these people really are. So perhaps that's a little bit healthier because he had his mm. good points and his really bad points as well. And to not have a myth around that, maybe that's a little bit uh, healthier because uh, I don't know about mm-hmm. this uh, uh, being a celebrity as president. It seems... I don't know, kind of odd. I will tell you, actually, mm-hmm. when I, I was in the state center for quite a while in the 1990s here in New Hampshire, and uh, there was some luncheon, and I was sitting at a table with a bunch of other people, and a woman uh, said, oh, I'm sitting at a table with a celebrity. And I was thinking, I'm not a celebrity. What the? I'm a political <laughs> person. It's like, why do the two mix? It's bizarre to me. I don't know. Mm. I think it, it, it concerns me. Actually, uh I believe it was Niccolo Machiavelli who said a politician mm. has to look good on top of a horse. Mm. You know, <laughs> a lot of that. Well, one person who didn't do a lot of horseback riding was Franklin Roosevelt, of course. 
<laughs> because he you know was in a, a wheelchair and had polio uh, which is amazing that, that that the press didn't go on that but franklin roosevelt was a mm-hmm. distant cousin to theodore roosevelt he became a legend because in fact he was a unusually consequential president his stature as hero to so many led to over 50 years of the opposite party the republicans defining themselves purely in opposition to all Franklin Roosevelt did for America. They've been trying to take that apart ever since he was president. Mm-hmm. He, he was, of course, highly imperfect, giving a wink and a nod to the Southern openly racist senators in exchange for his support for his New Deal. Perhaps, perhaps he became a celebrity because of his actual ability to run the government and to be a real uh, wonk and to to get things done when the uh, situation was really dire. My father was a mm-hmm. Roosevelt fan, and he acknowledged there were some dictator-like aspects that perhaps that was what the country needed. Dictators do rely on reverence. W- what does that say, do you think? No, that's a tough one. I mean, I think there's I think that, that that idea of dictatorship or, you know, the idea of a dictator gets tossed around a lot. And I mean, you mentioned Nick, Nicole Machiavelli and he writes, you know, he's one of the early political thinkers who writes about dictatorship and says that dictators are actually people who they're usually, at least in the Roman days, dictators were the ones who suspended the constitution for an emergency, right? It was like, there's a problem and we got to suspend things, emergency, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the dictator, we're going to appoint, appoint this person to take care of a problem. You know, give them a time frame, though. Give them like a couple years mm. to fix this issue that we have. And it's a commission. So that's the, that was the, one of the original ways folks thought of dictatorship. It was Machiavelli who kind of theorized it. And it's kind of morphed in this idea of a dictator being, you know, like an individual who, like, does what they want. I think you have just like, you know, going back again to Roman days, like Caligula, that guy who's kind of, you know, kind of uh, doing what they want when they want it, yeah. kind of mad, kind of, you know, out of control. And, and so, you know, and I don't think, I don't think FDR was the Caligula. <laughs> and I don't know if he, it's, he did command a lot of respect. And, yes. you know, there's the stories of, um, of, uh, you know, threatening to pack the Supreme court. And then there's the, there's the, what the National Recovery Act. I mean, some of the stuff that he proposed that he got through Congress got struck down later for being unconstitutional. And then he kept going back, though. And, like, you know, I think another thing with the New Deal, the like New Deal wasn't just, like, one law that, you know, it was a series oh, of yeah. things, right? Yeah. And it took a long time to pass all that legislation and to usher it through and all that. And, and I think that uh, he's, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I don't, to say, I mean, there is, so there is a way that, I mean, there was a massive economic crisis in the country, you know, when he took power, economic and environmental crisis. And, you know, talking about the Dust Bowl and so on yeah. going on right away when he's, you know, his, the background, uh, what he did. And that's why, you know, there's these stories of like first hundred days in office, you know, yes. passing farm, farm legislation that changed agriculture for, well, we're still talking about his, that legislation and also social security and all this other stuff. Um, and there's a way that there was, you know, he came to power, a lot of support, major crises and i don't know if you call it suspension but he was called to power and helped lead a government that made these big changes that we still got and then people of course like you're saying were quite upset you know and hoover herbert hoover the guy who he beat you know was one of those guys who were just stayed pretty mad at him for the rest of his life you know <laughs> that's 
true. Well, Roosevelt, of course, did beat Herbert Hoover, who, you know, it's amazing. His his mythology is forever linked with the simple word Hoovervilles. When people think of Herbert Hoover, oh yeah, Hoovervilles. And that was probably mentioned in one newspaper once. I don't know. But those, they were, you know, Hoovervilles were the cardboard shanty towns of unemployed. The truth is, Hoover actually was pretty liberal. He did a lot of good. He coordinated the delivery of food and supplies to citizens of Belgium after that country was overrun by Germany in 1914. And once the war ended, Hoover, who was head of the American Relief Administration, arranged shipments of food and aid to war-ravaged Europe. He earned worldwide acclaim for his humanitarian efforts, as well as thousands of appreciative letters from people all across Europe who benefited from the free meals, which they knew as Hoover lunches. <coughs> but no one knows that today. Again, all people think mm-hmm. of is Hoovervilles. D- mm-hmm. He did actually rehabilitate his image for a while. As you write, would Hoover have been called upon by Truman and Eisenhower to lead a reform of the highest office in the land had he not been president? It's unlikely. Talk about him, if you mm-hmm. would, please. Well, you know, funny thing, well, Herbert Hoover was, um, I had a friend who was an actor, he's passed uh, two years ago, and he did a one-man play on Herbert Hoover. Oh. And so I, yeah, you know, I used to hear about Herbert Hoover, like, just what you said, like, the way I, especially growing up, you know, like, FDR was the one who came and fixed Hoover's mess, because Hoover, Hoover did right. nothing, and, you know, let, let, the, let the Hoovervilles, you know, proliferate. And so I had a friend who did this one-man show, it was, it was just him, and he mm-hmm. was Hoover. And he talked about his life and talked about, and the play kind of humanizes him and talks about those things that you all mentioned about, you know, the, the, the aid program. I think uh, there's also a famine in the Soviet Union, and he tried to orchestrate yeah. something mm-hmm. with that. I mean, tons of different stuff that he did. Um, and one thing that he was really concerned about was administration. And so, uh, so I, you know, when I was, you know, looking back in history and thinking about Hoover, I think about my friend who was that, that actor who had the whole play about, about just Hoover's life and, and legacy. And, you know, getting more into his legacy and stuff like that. I think that um, he was always known. I think he's one of these figures that, I mean, he, uh, he, he, he was known as being real concerned with administration and, and, uh-huh. and you know, in, in, in trying to make it improve administration and so on. And he's also never liked, and I don't know if you call it, you know, like, like he didn't like that FDR beat him, but he did not like the new deal, the new deal policies, you know, and he came out quite early in FDR's administration opposing the, the, the New Deal policies that right. um, they continue. And so did a bunch of Republicans, you know, like it wasn't just, uh, okay. it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just, it wasn't, you know, everyone's was behind FDR, no. but he was known. I think he, 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 he stayed active and or present, you know, cause he also, when he lost, he was still a pretty young guy. And, you know, but when, you know, tens or so years pass after FDR is out of office, he gets called back to have an active role in politics, not to, not to run for office again, but to um, form these, and it's two of them, these Hoover commissions, mm. which were tasked with basically, I'm not really doing an audit, but tasked with like, I mean, overseeing, but pro- pro- proposing changes to federal government, like proposing changes to the presidency, like what, um, I think it was Truman who said, look, you know, this guy was president for a period of time. He's obsessed. He's not really obsessed, but, you know, real right. into administration, the science of administration, being efficient, you know, and so on. He's, he's, he's trustworthy. Let's call him back up here and mm. let's have him, you know, do a study, propose some changes that we can do. And, 
I think when you read through some of the stuff, and there's two of the two different Hoover commissions. I mean, they did actually um, lead to changes in government. Different things. I think everything from like highways and um, veterans affairs and different things. But there were real practical policy things that he um, helped introduce that became part of how well how government ran. It was all because of you know he was president, and then uh, he had a certain you know trust and so on with other leaders, and they brought him back for using his expertise. Well, he had certain skills, but my goodness, you know, reforming administration, making government more efficient, that's not so sexy. That's not, that doesn't make you a celebrity, you know? (laughs) And it's so much easier to be a celebrity. Just have uh, The Apprentice Mm. TV show and go from there. Mm. (laughs) Sports figures, you know, it's amazing how, you know, we look to sports figures and Hollywood people uh, to, to, you know, have them as, as speaking for us, somebody that we can trust. Whereas what Hoover mm-hmm. did, you know, just keeping his head down, doing the work of government, making it more efficient, mm-hmm. actually serving the common good. Ah, who remembers? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. tough to compete with. That's tough to compete mm-hmm. with. Now, mm-hmm. after, of course, after uh, Roosevelt died, Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, today he his image, I think, is a reassurance, a steady hand, a country boy. But there was a lot, you know, mm-hmm. a former haberdasher. There was a lot of labor turbulence during his one full term. What about him is reassuring about his image in history? Mm. Well, there's, you know, there's also like the, the Cold War is starting. I mean, I think the, the things that you mentioned are, are true. Like there's this, you know, this, I think this image of him as a... I don't know, like, what do you, I don't know if you call it populist, but there is this issue of, of um, you know, kind of a common man kind of thing uh, going on. Um, you have the Cold War starting out, and, you know, FDR is, and, and there's a story, too, of Truman. I mean, he was FDR's vice president, but he wasn't FDR's first choice, necessarily. And there's all this controversy, what, right. 1944, when oh, Truman yes. becomes vice president, and how, you know, Henry Wallace was... Yes. With his vice president Henry Wallace, the you want to call it progressive reformer out of Iowa, you know, central to agriculture and the farm bill, um, all that stuff, fairly popular, and he gets kind of kicked off the ticket for being too left wing. Truman kind of is seen, I think, by especially people in the party as being kind of maybe middle of the road, more centrist or something, but not as you know maybe out there for lack of better terms as Wallace was. Um, a lot of people I think have written you know yeah. about about that uh, controversy, but oh, yeah. I think maybe part of Truman's legacy is seen as being, and then, you know, Wallace runs, I think one runs against him as a pop, as a progressive and loses pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, that kind of centrist, um, I think, uh, what do you want to say? Like, uh, middle of the road kind of figure kind of maps on to how po- folks kind of think of, think yeah. of Truman. And it's true, he did really, really kick into high gear the Cold War with his uh, Mm -hmm. involvement in Greece and the Truman Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, Vietnam became placed in that box of it's us against the Russians, that that he created Mm -hmm. that box. And a lot of people died, and it was, was the the box didn't fit really. And it's interesting, Mm -hmm. Henry Wallace, I think as time... You know, time changes thing. How people look at history. He's become. I think his 
his image is becoming uh, more burnished these days, especially by people mm. on the left, especially when they realize that, that what happened in 1944, which I did a show about a long time ago, was a coup. It was mm. actually a coup at the Democratic mm. mm-hmm. Convention mm-hmm. when he was uh, yeah. the, the, the machine of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. kicked uh, Wallace off. He never became president. Mm-hmm. So, But now he's... I think perhaps over time, and as as time does go on and, and more history is written, he becomes more of a hero, uh, Henry Wallace does. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're having a lot of fun here, I must say, talking uh, with Anthony Pankey about his article, Why Does the U.S. Mythologize Its Former Presidents? We're looking at the whole process of mythologizing. Eisenhower is another president who it seems history is is still deciding about. Why do you think he mm. has not been so mythologized? I mean, he was a great mm. general, no question about that, a real hero there. But why do you think Eisenhower, who has not been mythologized? Yeah, you have, um, yeah, he's a tough one. I mean, uh, yeah, he's a... Interstates. He's the one who got us the interstates, basically. Yeah. But uh, you know, folks, I think remember him. You definitely as being a you know a World War II general. Um, and it's it's yeah. I wonder if I mean, there's a lot of things going on. I think during his time, you know, there's also again like the Cold War. Oh yeah. Um, going on, heating up, so to speak. Um, we said like the Korean War. Um, and so on. And I think you have. I mean, I don't know if it's also like the fifties. Um, there's a way that I think we remember the sixties as being maybe, you know, a dynamic period and, you know, in us history for all the changes going on in fifties is, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on internationally, but, you know, back in the United States, people I think are coming home. They're getting, yeah. you know, the, the post-war effort, you know, um, there, there are some protests and, you know, the civil rights movement gets off the ground, you know, in the mid fifties and so on. But I think the, you know, the fifties, Khrushchev comes to visit, <laughs> like in the, what in the in the fifties? But I don't know if you know, like the the kind of turbulence or the 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 kind of you know the the the, the big protests and bigger changes that we see domestically, we don't really see during his time. And I think that you know, you know, we don't really. I guess part of the reason why we don't have like a you know this kind of myth or thought going on, or you know these these images of him of, of Eisenhower and his administration. Well, yeah, I mean, peace and prosperity. Oh, it's boring. <laughs> you know, it's not dramatic. But it was an amazingly, uh, I mean, if you were white, that is, uh, you know, there was a large yeah. middle class. Uh, people had jobs, and there was nothing uh, really dramatic about uh, President mm-hmm. Eisenhower. But it was really peace and prosperity. Then you come to that other young president, JFK. Very easy mm. to mythologize. You talk about glamour, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the opposite of some of these other people who were just schlubs, you know, who didn't have any real glamour, <laughs> but could run the government. Ah, uh, you know, Camelot, so glamorous, mm-hmm. so glamorous. He was young and vigorous and assassinated. And, you know, I don't know if the, if it's possible to mythologize beyond that particularly. What about JFK? Yeah, we're a hero too, right? So that is true. Hero. True, yeah, yeah. PT one. So yeah, I think yeah. There's the 
uh yeah like w- there's the there, there's oh yeah all the things that you mentioned like celebrity and you know, assassination and there's that um yeah it's hard to say like what else could really yeah. and also like kind of what that kind of covers up too in terms of i mean there's all the different stories of you know relationships with women and and so on i think that's something too in a lot of these the presidencies we see that there's you know whether it was celebrity there's ways that men can um, well, be misogynistic and yeah. kind of, you know, uh, treat women poorly. Yeah. Um, and, and how our, you know, our way of mythologizing and romanticizing leaders, especially male leaders, you know, we turn away from the way that, you know, you mentioned not just, uh, race, but also, you know, sexism and so on. And I mean, but you know, that's not really what we think of JFK. You're saying we think of what, um, young, handsome guy, young family, and then the tragedy, you know, not yeah. to say that assassination wasn't a tragedy, but that you have this life cut short, um, what could have happened? And that gets people thinking, of course, you know, um, what could have happened? Would he have stayed in power in another administration? What would have happened to civil rights? What would have happened to uh, mm. Vietnam? Would mm. things have been different? Would the, US, would the U.S. have ended, you know, the, the war earlier? I mean, there's all these what-ofs, and then you know, people write books about it. Then there's even, you know, the, the killing itself, who did it, and why they did it, and how many people were involved, and all that. And so, you know, I think those kinds of, and you know, I mean, he was also you what like the first where not what was, was it the first the one where him and Nixon the debates televised That's on right. TV, right? You know, and you you get that kind of talk about celebrity like the the ways that communications technology now it's Twitter and Facebook and social media and back then you know it's TV and that's like people see a president they, you know, it's like they're in their, your living room and that you know how that con- contributes to myths and ideas of leadership is, you know, just, you know, with JFK, it's just like going out of the water, you know? True. That's a good point. And, uh, and poor Nixon didn't, didn't quite have that. He had, you know, and just, <laughs> just the looks, the TV thing. And I, I've heard it said that those who listened to the debate purely on the radio thought, oh, yeah, Nixon mm-hmm. won. But those who watched it on mm-hmm. TV, Kennedy won. And the image, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're talking about celebrity here and myth, Image, image, image. And, of course, uh, Trump has loved that as well. Jimmy Carter, you know, he wasn't such a great president exactly. But then, as you talk about in your article, you know, it's what they do after the presidency that that often builds their myth. Jimmy Carter, I think he's 91 now, something like that, maybe older. Mm -hmm. He builds homes for the less fortunate in Habitat for Humanity. You know, hammers mm-hmm. and nails actually getting in there. Most presidents mm-hmm. are expected to have monuments built to themselves after their service. What about the role of, well, what about Jimmy Carter and the role of presidential libraries in myth-making? Mm-hmm. You know, something about, you know, how this important this guy was so that there, of course, is going to be a library. Mm-hmm. I think, from what I remember, I think um, FDR is one of the first to have a library, actually. I think it was like a place, the guy was in power for so long, the idea was like he had all these correspondences and letters and all this stuff, and it was like, where are we going to do with all this stuff? And they're like, you know, not only would the president want that, but for other policymakers and then just academics and researchers and all this stuff, people are going to want to look at this stuff, perhaps, to understand you know, why they made the decisions when they did and all that. So let's put them in a space, let's put them in, you know, make a library, then do that different presidents that well basically all of them since then have some kind of library um some place and you know it's not i don't know if you call it a monument it's kind of like 
I mean, it seems on one hand, like not that important, but now, uh, you know, every president, if you're a president, you get a library. Right, right. <laughs> and I know people like colleagues of mine and so on who like, you know, they, I know someone uh, who did research at the Truman library, you know, uh-huh. that's, they have these important um, documents and so on. And in Jimmy Carter, you know, I think like, you know, another, you know, one term president and, you know, it's hard to say, I mean, he's another one where, you know, it's hard to say like, you know, he's a Iran hostage crisis going on and, you know, um, at the time and a lot of people, you know, you know put it on him, that, you know, what was going on. And, and you also have, you know, that stagflation, you know, you have that period oh, of yeah. like no growth and high inflation, the oil crisis. Um, and, and so I think like there was, you know, it's one of these cases of somebody who's the president um, and who kind of almost fell victim to the circumstances around mm. them. And maybe they could have been better leaders in terms of creating policies and stuff. But, you know, um, it's hard to say that uh, that they're the, you know, the primary problems. You know, it's like I think in this country, particularly people like, you know, you got a problem, you know, if it's raining outside, you'll blame the president. You know, it's not always that simple where there's uh, a, you know, all these stories of, um you know, um, there's a there's a book actually. It's called uh, "Democracy for Realists." Uh, it, I think Larry Bartell writes, it, and he writes about how, you know, basically there's all these stories of like people in certain places in the country. There's like a shark attack somewhere, and people get mad, and then they vote out like the local mayor or whatever. Right. Even though the two are like basically unrelated, <laughs> <course>. you know. <laughs> but <laughs> the point is, you know, people, you know, we, you know, Jimmy Carter is not exactly like that, but there's all these problems going on in the country at the time, and people you know, say, you know, let's have a change. And then, you know, he, and he's voided out and whether or not you can put the blame square on him, like the problems with inflation, all that stuff, you know, he wasn't him didn't start during his administration, right. but people wanted something done. And then you get Reagan after him. <laughs> oh yes. And you talk about celebrities. My goodness. He, <laughs> he was, go. he was a, cele- I mean, that's, that's his whole shtick. I mean, that's his claim to fame is that he was a grade B actor, uh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and now, you know, he's a saint, St. Ronnie. He's a Republican mm-hmm. icon. His, uh, he's exactly what we're talking about here as, you know, as a mm-hmm. myth, Historians see him as the president who did the most and longest lasting damage damage to our republic. Some historians, anyway. He nearly uh, nearly completing a tra- the transformation from a republic to a plutocracy. Really, I mean, he did major changes. He's a saint among Republicans. Never mind. Iran-Contra with its fourteen convictions, the HUD scandal with sixteen convictions, eight billion dollar in taxpayer money lost in the SNL scandal, a trillion dollar cost to taxpayers, record deficits, seven and a half percent unemployment rate, billions wasted on Star Wars, remember that? And destruction mm-hmm. of the labor movement, on and on and on. But it's his style as an actor. Machiavelli's hero on the horseback, projecting <laughs> the cowboy savior riding in on a white steed that supersedes a very ugly reality. Your your thoughts on, on Reagan and his lasting legacy. I'm starting to mm. think it's a little bit tarnishing. I don't know though. What's what I mean, here's mm. a perfect example of mythologizing. Yeah, you know, he's got this, like you said, the, the acting history and so on. He also like brings in, you know, this thing that's become like this this idea of, like the taxpayer is like this you know, this, you know, we cutting taxes. Or what, what do you say about? Uh, 
I forget the phrase that or the quote that they ascribe to about um, government, government isn't being the solution. So small. Yeah, oh. government solution is the problem. And what was that about government yeah, being but, so small? Oh, yeah, that was a good I one. I forget, but something like that. I forget, but I think what you said was yeah, sums it up that um, like, you know, you could so small you could know, drown in a bathtub. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Was it? I don't know if it was, yeah, but something like yeah, that, that idea. And now you have um, what Grover Nord, Chris, and uh, I forget his group in DC. They have oh, yeah. Americans for Tax Reduction or something like the idea. And they've lapped, you know, I they they a lot of folks on the right, you know, really sunk their teeth in that idea. And like uh, here in well, you know, I, I teach in California, but I'm, my family's from Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin, and um, I'm actually there now. I'm in Wisconsin because of the pandemic and we had Scott Walker as our governor here and his whole thing when he got into power was, you know, cut taxes, small government. And there's something that about that, I think Reagan really brings, you know, just blew up like the idea that we all pay taxes. um, We want to control our money and people really connected to that idea, even though, you know, you know, taxes fund things like schools and, you know, roads and stuff, but that's not the (laughs) the issue. The issue is like, I don't really want to, you know, I want to keep my money and guard right. it and I'm no best what to do with it. And then there's also, you know, the, the, the religious mobilization, like the way that he was able to bring together folks who, you know, wanted to cut taxes, but not get rid of programs. You know, the idea is <laughs> social security, let's not get rid of social security, but cut taxes, let's go into debt. You know, U.S., largest government in the world, we can just, you know, bankroll things, you know, that's him. And you know, bring in the religious groups, like really politicizing religion and stuff. I mean, and this is where I think, you know, his legacy, there's this, um, you know, this, uh, like turning away from the new deal is really like what folks have been working for, for decades before him. That's when, you know, there's a page is turned in, in, you know, I think in, in mm. U S history and he's kind of brings those forces together. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I remember the old commercials, him, was it morning in America? Commercials? Yes, like, morning in America. Right. <laughs> sunrise and all that. And, um, talk up, you know, it's the, you know, trying to turn away from the new deal, turn away from Jimmy Carter and all that. And there was the, you know, that, that, uh, media presence and all that. We was really able to talk, you know, capture. And I was, uh, you know, talking about, it, it seems like it was the absolute, uh, victory of myth over reality because mm. the reality wasn't mm-hmm. so good but but the myth mm-hmm. of rugged individualism just the images mm. just image mm. image image that's all it was so maybe that's why he's so revered by the republicans because they could you mm. know without people looking help their their good buddies who have tremendous wealth already and just look like they're some sort of a leader you know like like there's some mm-hmm. hero who's mm-hmm. come in to save mm-hmm. them uh, and uh, you know just doing that uh, he's an example of, of exactly what we're talking about mm-hmm. and as mm-hmm. uh, for those who may have just tuned in Bert Cohen here again the show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about why why does the US mythologize its former presidents and what does it mean and what does it do for us our guest is uh, Assistant Professor of International Relations at San Francisco State University, Anthony Pankey. And uh, he's written an article on this topic on Al Jazeera. Um, and as you point out, being impeached is no barrier to popular favor. That's your quote. Andrew Johnson mm-hmm. has deservedly, as you know, much maligned tenure in the White House. 
but he was able to resuscitate his image enough to be elected to the U.S. Senate after impeachment. Talk about that a little bit, please, about being impeached is no barrier to popular favor, and I wonder how that will play out uh, as we move forward. Right. So that's what I, you know, when I was, you know, as we're talking about Trump and what Trump's going to do and what he can do and, you know, the yeah. Senate trial is going on now. Uh, what do they say? Like, there's been four impeachments and half of them are, are his. And uh, <laughs> Johnson was one of the, <laughs> Johnson was the other, one of the others, Clinton yeah. the other. Yeah. Um, Nixon was close, but didn't make it. But right. the, the thing was, you know, Johnson's the first and he gets out of power. And I didn't really, you know, I think, you know, a lot of us know that the history, you know, the civil war coming to end, Lincoln's assassinated, he becomes president. And then he kind of doesn't really lead a real effort to, you know, in reconstruction. Um, yeah, he sure. lets a lot of slave owners regain power. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, you know, makes, makes, I think uh, the story of like, uh, there's all these stories of like um, Confederate generals and, and leaders going back in the office right afterwards. And he, and he wanted them, if they're going to get back in the policy, he wanted them to like come personally and, and beg for forgiveness to, to DC. And, and people are like, wait, you know, we need real policy. We need real changes. And he was not real into it, you know? And so then he gets impeached, uh, I think for other reasons, but the, he's impeached. And then, you know, you know, part of the article of things that, you know, I was thinking about was, you know, that like you have these politicians, you have individuals who, you know, they are the most powerful people in the country or maybe yeah. even in the world for a period of time. And you don't just like go home and retire really. Like you still want mm. to have influence some way and he's no different. Like he, he goes back home and he runs for office and loses and then he wins. Like he becomes, I think it's Tennessee becomes Senator and he gets, you know, he's going to go back to DC and work and then he dies. I, yeah. I, think, I forget if it's a heart attack or a stroke, but he dies, he never gets to be Senator again, but you know, he couldn't, he never stopped. Like, you know, the guy, that's I mean, part of the story here. I think with all the presidents, you know, are the presidents and former presidents, they constantly want to stay influential and he's no different. True, and you're reminding me of John, Quin- John Quincy Adams, who was president mm-hmm. and then went into mm-hmm. Congress. Good man, I, yeah. I think. And then, of course, mm-hmm. we got one of the uh, impeached people, Bill Clinton. And he was impeached, mm-hmm. and he has spoken at every Democratic convention since leaving August, uh, mm-hmm. office. Why? You know, he's another... It, got a nice image, a nice smile, real attractive celebrity. Why is there this willingness to forgive and forget how much is it style over substance celebrity over statesmanship, mm. especially in his case. Do you mm-hmm. Think? Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, this thing too, like, again, like, like the time periods and the, you know, you have the Clinton, the I, Joseph Stiglitz wrote a book called the roaring nineties. And it's about, you know, the nineties the was, you know, this period of time when, you know, like economic growth and so on and Clinton's overseeing it. And you have, I think also, at least I think for Democrats, you know, Clinton, and I think it's questioned now, but a lot of stuff in the 90s, like the Democrats, because I mean, Reagan comes to power, he crushes the unions, and I think the Democrats, for, you know, if Mondale running against him in 84 loses his shirt, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, wins only Minnesota, I think, you know, just gets his clock cleaned, and Clinton, and I should say the Clinton administration, the Clinton um, campaign, for lack of better terms, is able to kind of refashion, Uh rebrand the Democrats. And you see the same thing in Britain. You know, folks are trying to figure out how to take on Thatcher and Tony Blair and this like third way left, center left way of doing politics comes about, which, you know, I think we're questioning somewhat um, these days. But Clinton, you know, is kind of seen, you know, even but even at the time, you know, he's impeached. 
Um, and it backfired. Like, you know, the Republicans run on this, um, mm. you know, that, that he lied under oath and, and not just the lying, but it's the impropriety and all that, um, for the affair. And then, and then his popularity doesn't dip at all. Like, unlike Nixon, who dips, you know, especially after, well, after he resigns, Clinton stays pretty consistent. Like, there's these polls that show that he did, stayed pretty popular in the U.S. Like, the, the, the strategy to impeach him didn't, and, and that did ha- and it worked, uh, that happened, but it didn't lead to, you know, this fallout, the Democrats leaving him and causing disarray in the party. It didn't happen, you know, with Clinton. And you remind me of Mondale, I, and, and the idea mm. we talked about in the beginning about, you know, this head of state and head of government. If you could have had, mm-hmm. I, I've often thought that if you could have had Reagan as head of state without any real political power, but a schlub like mm-hmm. Mondale, who had no celebrity mm-hmm. whatsoever, but he was capable of mm-hmm. running government. But that's the mm-hmm. system that mm-hmm. we have. So, fast mm-hmm. forward to this orange thing, Donald Trump. <laughs> his, uh, his, you say, uh, uh, Reagan was a precursor to Trump. It was he who created the phrase, make America great again. Ronald Reagan created that. He tapped into and roused the right-wing evangelicals into real political power. So now we have former President Trump, and as you say of him, as he has never been one to avoid the spotlight, we can be guaranteed that the next four years will be replete with Trump appearances and interjections into public life. His followers would walk over hot coals for him. They would die for him. Seriously. You Mm. say, we have to wonder to what lengths the former president will go to exert power and wield influence. One thing that is clear is that Trumpism Trumpism will not go away quietly. That, to me, is kind of scary. He's just barely out Mm -hmm. of power. But from your review of the mythologizing of former presidents, what direction do you see it going? Will Trumpists continue to own the Republican Party? Might it be too early to say? What's your sense of that? I mean, he's such a celebrity, and there's so much mythologizing about him amongst his followers. You know, I think, well, we're seeing things play out. Liz Cheney, um, you know, censored in Wyoming, and then I don't know if Ben Sass has been censored, mm. censured in uh, Nebraska, but there's talk of that. In Arizona, they censured uh, mm-hmm. what, Cindy McCain and I think Jeff Flake and stuff. And I think that, you know, we're, I think, you know, when I think of Trump and we talk about celebrity and all that, like, I can't help but, you know, there's a, think of like the, again, like the media and talking about, you know, we talked about Kennedy and the TV and, and that back then, you know, at the time it was amazing, it was huge. But nowadays, you know, we talk about, you know, image and celebrity and communications, and now it's social media. And there's such a way um, that um, that communicate. People talk about echo chambers that, you know, if you're on Facebook or or uh, Instagram or whatever, you know, you even when you you know you go on your computer, you go to Google and you search for something. You go to Amazon and you buy something, and then you open up your email that there'll be a similar advertisement in your yep. email for what you just purchased. There's, you know, the ways that social media creates these spaces. We think they're the world, but they're really just narrow corners of the world. And, you know, with Trump, I think we're seeing kind of how that plays out politically. Like you can be a Trump supporter and believe what he says and then tell your friends and your friends tell their friends. And then you stay in this tiny little corner of the world. And then if you're not in that corner of the world, it's like another universe, yeah, you know? Yeah. And that's where I think we're seeing, you know, there's, on one hand, it's, you know, on one hand, it is like, we see this all the time, you know, like after an election, you lose and you reassess, and you're like, what went wrong? And some people go, well, we got this guy, Trump, he could run again, let's support him. Other people say, let's do something different. I mean, 
when um you know when obama won back you know years ago like the the republicans did a reassessment then too of what what to do what directions to take you know and they didn't take it and now (laughs) they didn't take it i think now there's a certain you know a certain similarity in terms of you know like directions that the party will take and I mean, I don't think it's, I, I don't think he's going to, not just him. I mean, we'll see what's still what's going on. He doesn't have his Twitter account, but the thing is, he's still, I mean, he's still there. Big and, you know, will he open his own TV network or something? Like, it's, I mean, that's possible. <laughs> well, I, I have often chafed at the idea of American exceptionalism that so many people believe in. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe that's this is what we're talking about here. This mythologizing that we kind of have to do. Maybe this is one way that Americans truly are exceptional. Your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Well, is it that we're exceptional, or that we think we're exceptional? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we think that we're exceptional. That's the main thing. You yeah. know, yeah. that's the that's the the the, the thing that you know we. we you know, the, the shining city on the hill or whatever. But like, oh, if yes. we think we're that, then that's all that matters. <laughs> and that, that whole, maybe just that, you know, having this mythology, uh, I don't know, maybe, mm-hmm. I, I I don't really know, but I don't, I, I'm not sure if other, you know, industrialized nations uh, do that same kind of thing, if they need to do that. We're so Hollywood and celebrity mm-hmm. oriented. I don't know. I hope we can, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll see. We got uh, Joe Biden now and, you know, he's not a big star, but he's, an adult in the room who actually seems to care mm-hmm. about governing. Well, what a concept. Mm-hmm. He's not a, he's not a celebrity <laughs> and we made it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I don't know if, if do you write regularly for Al Jazeera? If people are interested in following more of your work, is there something you can point to like on the internet? Sure. Yeah. If you just you know, search my name, you know, Anthony Ponk, you have a website and um, you can see, I, I write for Al Jazeera periodically. Um, I think uh, we'll have a piece, something coming out um, sooner than later about uh, right-wing extremism in Europe and the United States that uh, we're working on. And I periodically write about just politics, but also different issues with development and food and farm policy. And it's Anthony, P-A-H-N-K-E. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for a very interesting and fun discussion. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. President Nixon, do you remember the bills you have to pay, or even yesterday? Have you been on America? Just you and your idol symbols and so loud. Well, it ain't that far to do. What's been 